If you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a bullish looking in the mirror at itself. I can't wait for the episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire where all the contestants team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. The message of Occupy Wall Street is I would prefer not to play the existing game. We are a socialist party and there are social solutions to the problems. Communal lifestyles, I don't know about that. <laughs> no one can tell me what to do. Wow, you're a real anarchist. And now we had a king. I thought we were an autonomous collective. No words for you puppets of the West. Communism forever. God, those communists are amazing. Absolutely right, Alex Jones. Hi, I'm Dan Platt. Welcome to West Left in Albany. This program covers the built environment, politics, and people of Albany, as well as the surrounding Tri-City area and region, featuring discussions with leaders of communities or organizations to discuss themselves, local issues, and their projects in an effort to get the full picture of what's going on. At least that is if I booked guests at this time. I'm Dan Platt, your friendly neighborhood eco-socialist, promoting the build-out of a solidarity economy, delegated democracy, as well as waging my one-man clandestine insurgency against confusion in our post-liberal status quo, as we cannot hope to change our current conditions until we understand them. Whatever the outrages or joys we have for the city, we are going to find whatever's left. So, did you know, dear listeners, Albanians, that Albany is ranked among one of the highest places to live, at least this year, by... The U.S. News and World Report, trusted source of news. You you trust them, right? They're ranked uh, not totally high, not, not in the top 10, but out of 150 populated metro areas, we are in the top 25. The 17th, to be exact, which is four spots higher than our rankings in 22 and 23. We're going up, baby! Albany is still the best place to live in New York, according to the new rankings. Below Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, and New York. We're even better than New York. Albany received an overall rating of 6.6 out of 10, with a 5.4 for desirability. So a little over half. 6.8 for value, 6.6 for job market, 7.1 for quality of life, which gives us the overall score of 6.5. And that places at 17. That's not saying a lot. So there's, that means no one has a 10. Usually rankings should start with 10 being the best of your list and then go down. But it seems like they were just kind of counting up. Is it possible for anyone to have a 10, sp 10 score? So the top spots are Green Bay. I guess we should go to Green Bay. They do have a publicly owned football team. They actually have public assets. Huntsville, Alabama. Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina. So that's, that's basically college towns. We're a college town. Boulder, Colorado's fourth. Sarasota and Florida, which is just suburbia. I, okay. Portland, Maine. I haven't visited, but uh, it's uh, smaller than Albany, but it seems rather nice. Charlotte, North Carolina, which is it Charlotte I'm thinking of? It's interesting thing about Charlotte. Uh, I watched a, a city nerd video 
And because Charlotte is the large, it's a million person metro area, it also has the least density per its overall area. So it's, it's, it has a very wide area, but it's the least dense. But he went there to visit to kind of see what is it's like, because he did like point out there's a pretty walkable neighborhood there. And he did find that there are they are expanding um, transit-oriented development with light rail, which uh, somebody who is from there that I actually talked to on Saturday at local bookshop uh, said, "Oh yeah, but they they like fall off the rails pretty easily." <laughs> and but the thing that happens is you create these islands of walkability via transit-oriented development, and people drive there. So there's still tons of parking. It's like people drive to be in these urban environments. They're driving from all over this metro area. Um, but how many actually live there? Do they want to live in a place like that? That's the kind of question he's explored in other videos. But let's see. Uh, just going back to our ranking. So we were 17th. That We are right below Jacksonville, Florida, and above Myrtle Beach. And then Des Moines is below them. So, yeah. But this is U.S. News and World Report, which is a tabloid for the most part. And uh, it kind of reminds me, it's not sort of similar, since I'm also in university data, that there are many universities that have basically, Ivy League especially, opting out of college rankings and magazines or newspapers. They're like, your rankings are meaningless. They're... You're, you're not even studying data like we are, you know, you're not even using our data, stuff like that. Speaking, well, not totally related to data, but I'm just going topic by topic. This is a something of a, what do you call it, a potpourri show. So this program, I just kind of cover random articles that I've saved over time. I only do the show average once a month. Hopefully that's getting better. I keep saying that. I said that last month. I said the month before that. We'll see. Things are getting much more active, though. And I work very close by. So, like I did a whole year ago, where I was consistently doing the show and doing the radio station work, I can do both. Anyway, a story about the uh, 787 and its future. Uh, I'm very much part of the camp of locals or urbanists who want to not just, t or t let's say transform 787, at least along the Albany waterfront, which is just a minute section of it, really. We're not really decarring the, the entire area by doing this. But, um, but to at least make it a boulevard, so that once you enter Albany, uh, or at least Albany downtown, you are at grade, it's not a highway anymore, separating the city from the waterfront. Besides the few footbridges that we are we build once every 20 years. You know, oh, we just added one. So that means it will be 2035 when we get a third crossing over 787. Unless that's when we start the conversion process, which is maybe an optimistic uh, timeline. Why? Well, here's Albany Business Review with the uh, reporting. The um, There's now a new or a slated, maybe because we haven't actually had one yet, study about it, which, so the headline is, Interstate 787 study starts in Albany with 5.3 million contract. So we can't even think about what we're going to do without $5 million study grant. Even though 
there is a group of professionals that are very much willing to do this work. They kind of already have, at least they pitched conceptual drawings. I know they're probably doing the actual like legwork. Um, when you look at the actual numbers of how many people are commuting on this stretch of highway, it's paltry. It's like just 100,000 a day. That's nothing compared to other highways. It's, it is sort of the commuting population of Albany, but that could be split up, going, gone other places, or rather a boulevard can handle that. It's, it's just like what can handle it fast, so it's a matter of speed and acceleration. But what can we have a world where that isn't the primary driver of anything? So a study to reimagine the future of Interstate 787 has gotten off the ground now that the state DOT, State Department of Transport, has awarded this $5.35 million contract. Parsons, Transportation Group of New York, Inc., is leading the consulting team that will do an engineering feasibility and planning study about ways in which the highway and exit ramps that divide downtown Albany from the Hudson River could potentially be reconfigured. The three-year contract. was a, So it's going to take them three years just to study the problem. That is depressing. On a level, I don't want to contemplate. Three years, that's why it's just like, let's not think about this for another five years. Three-year contract was approved April 14th and expires March 15th of 2026. According to See-Through New York, the database of any state government expenditure. Ooh, we could have some fun looking through that. Parsons is part of Parsons Corp, based in Centerville, Virginia. The firm's portfolio includes roads, highways, bridges, and tunnels. Of course, does portfolio mean they actually own them or they, like, build them? Hmm. Probably building. Subconsultants are Fort Albert Associates Architecture Engineering Surveying PC in Albany, AKRF Inc. in Manhattan, Crichton Manning Engineering Colony, Fisher Associates PE in Albany. I don't know why they need so many. But again, it's, it's, it's like the trickle-down economics. You know, you see five million and then it gets split up six ways. Um, middlemen, middlemen, middlemen. A local grassroots movement has been building for years, though it's mostly professional interest group at this point, to figure out a way to reconnect the river and the downtown core. You know, figure out, it's such a big puzzle. No, it's very simple. There's a big highway in the way that were split by the construction of the multi-lane highway, which was completed in the 70s. And thus, all traffic problems in Albany were solved. The only safe crossing now is at the pedestrian bridge and the recently opened Albany Skyway, uh, which was previously a little-used highway ramp. Now, personally, I was not really for this. I do not like it being called a pedestrian bridge because, you see, it's a mile long. It's not really a bridge. It's a... A pleasure path or um, relaxation trail. It's it's not it doesn't even serve the purpose of the High Line in Manhattan. Um, is going through a, a neighborhood and it's a straight line. This is a big curve and you can you can't get off of it. So it's it's not like connecting. It's so uh, Assemblywoman Fahey secured this five million in last year's state budget. So it's only taken effect this year. I hope to stay intimately involved in terms of how to reimagine 787, which to me includes repurposing or taking down some of the access roads and ramps, as well as considering going over parts of it with a park or a green bridge or going underneath by unearthing the original Lock 1 of your canal. I, for one, would hate the option of going under it. 
because aesthetically it doesn't solve the issue of it's uh, yeah if you're just looking at of like we just need more connections then yeah let's just build a bunch of tunnels i guess and we'll mole ourselves to the waterfront or we would be like hartford connecticut where the it's still a big highway there but you just got a lot of road and footbridges over it and it's sunken down but we can't get rid of it we can't change it to a boulevard. No, no, no. It still has to stay a highway. But there are roads and access roads that totally can go. And deep, we can depave a number of lanes there. Because they're not really highway lanes. The study is happening at a time when urban highway ramps and arterials are being rerouted, buried, or removed in other parts of the country, including a portion of Interstate 81 in Syracuse, and billions of dollars in federal infrastructure aid are in the pipeline. The DOT's estimated construction cost breakdown for Interstate 787 is $667 million for highway and $333 million for bridge for a total of a billion, with the expectation funding would be provided by state and federal government. Reconstruct is that is that the cost of reconstructing it? I mean that kind of makes sense. The actual amount of funding remains to be seen. Scott Townsend, a Troy architect and founder of the Albany Riverfront Collaborative, him or another member of the collaborative, I gotta look into having one of them on, said he and other members of the group have met with DOT to discuss the upcoming study. There's an open dialogue, Townsend said. His goal is for as many people as possible to have a stake in the highway's future to be involved and participate in the process. So it's very much a kind of uh, they are consultative. They're a consultative public interest group. Not exactly democratic, in my opinion. They're representative of a certain class of people, but what about the class of people that use the park or could potentially use the park? Anyway, his last quote here is, We are looking to deepen the engagement and hoping we can assist by being a conduit to the community. Uh, so I, hopefully, well, I, guess I guess I'll be playing a part in that if I have one of the moms short-term or medium-term goals. So I'll wrap up this uh, section or this article with kind of a statement that, like, oh, why, no, why doesn't this interest group just do a study and that can be used by state DOT? Well, you see, studies do not count unless they are done by the agency that's going to implement them. And so in order for it to be an official study, they have to hire the right consultants or basically a bunch of middlemen. So even though all the work could be done by civil society through a democratic process where it is even all volunteer, but let's say people work somehow compensated, that wouldn't be official. Example that I fume about is how the there's the Albany Bike Coalition, and they're constantly studying and counting and doing their own surveys for to get data gather because no one else is, or no one else will. It's a very it's a very simple direct action form of, of, of activism. We do the counting, I helped with it one day. Um, they did the studies showing, you know, or they hire someone themselves to to show how the road diet will be an improvement in all facets and not adversely affect travel times, like in Madison Avenue, where, you know, the results of their study was that, you know, it would decrease um, or increase driving time by two minutes, the time it takes. Or, oh, no, 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 not time it takes, but the average driving speed. It would go from 14 miles per hour to 12 miles per hour. And the city wouldn't implement the road diet unless they did their own study. 
It took them two years to do it. So what could have taken, like, what could have been done five years ago with the Madison Ave Road Diet or any future road diet, there is basically a five-year delay baked in through the fact that the city has to do its own study, hire its own people, spend its own money, meaning our money, and have the same exact results as the Albany Bike Coalition. Because that's, like, I literally went to the Albany Bike Coalition's presentation in 2013 or 14, and then I went to the city's consultant's presentation, like, two years later. It was, like, almost the same thing. I'm like, what was this two-year wait for? And it's got to be another two years before it's done, and which it was. So that's the same thing with this. The, you know, the civil society group could do it, the study. They could do for the numbers. They could go through all the publicly available data. But uh, unless these, this big engineering firm from Virginia with six subcontracted firms scattered across the state, two of which are at least in Albany, but why don't they do it? Why don't they have the capacity? Are they too small? Are they too small for this big a project? They can't handle a billion dollars? So I guess since um, I'm just talking about transportation, and that's tangentially related to environmental issues and climate change, I want to cover, it's not quite fresh news, of course, but it wouldn't be, but it is from the um, from Tuesday, last Tuesday. Uh, Daily Gazette, when's the smoke going to end? Unclear, but Canadian wildfire smoke to continue in Capital Region into Thursday, by Ashley Huffle. Now, this is already passed. The smoke has moved on to the west, <laughs> and now it's choking them. Or, or it went on to choke D.C., in the coming days, and then we got all of the nice... So we went from New York City skyline pictures of an orange sky to D.C. being in smog while climate, prote climate change protesters are there. But th maybe this can gain some uh, extra factoids and insight um, after the fact. New Yorkers should stay inside whenever possible to avoid the outdoor outdoors for the foreseeable future. So normally our air quality index is around 50 in New York State. In the last 24 hours... Uh, from the numbers this morning, we've updated that information to 400 index in our parts per state. That's an 800% increase. So 50 is normal. It was 400 last week uh, when it was actually like, I smell a pit fire. Hochul issued this recommendation. Of course, no mandate. Hell, hey, no, she's not authoritarian like Como. No mandates, no restrictions. Not, not uh, No, you, we all have the freedom to to choke, um, or at least do get some smoke inhalation. Um, according to the State Department of Environmental Conservation, their website, the Upper Hudson Valley had a 110 AQI, and it's unhealthy for sensitive groups. Um, that's Upper Hudson Valley, referring to Fulton Green, Montgomery, Saratoga, and Schenectady. So the U.S. EPA's air quality website showed 200 AQI in Schenectady County this Wednesday. This is the Gazette, so it's connected primarily. The state issued a continuing air quality health advisory for the region Thursday, but other regions of the state were expected to be worse. For example, the downstate metro area. See, the Adirondacks had the best air quality, since it's higher elevation, of course, and more trees, but that doesn't really matter. Bottom line is this. If you stay indoors, stay indoors. This is detrimental to people's health. This is expected to go for the next few days, says Hochul. So people need to prepare for it the long haul. We can all feel it. It is an effect of the collateral damages of climate change. It's an environmental crisis. 
And I want to make sure all New Yorkers are aware of this. Well, I'm so glad we're all aware of it. But what is the state doing about it? Well, I may tell you, we may have this, you know, the country's greatest, you know, strongest climate change bill as far as, like, what it does. Uh, the Community you know, Climate Investment Act. Too bad none of it's funded. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of talk, not a lot of action. And if there is action, it's in the form of the neoliberal carrot and stick, which is that if you're a corporation, you get a carrot, and if you're a worker, you get a stick or get hit with a stick. This goes for any um, particular area, uh, if we're talking about housing, you know, and urban development, which I count on uh, every show I do, basically, and I will <laughs> later. It happens with climate change and so on, and, that, and that's sort of the double bind of policy if you're working in a liberal context, which is why I'm a leftist. So I work in a leftist context and say, yes, that's all bad. That carrot and stick model of corporations get carrots, tax breaks, sweetheart deals, because they're in a market and it's a race to the bottom. But if you are a worker and you're pretty much stuck in place or wherever you can rent, then um, you'll be fine. There will be mandates. There will be extra costs put onto construction that will not be funded by the state that requires it. You know, I guess I'm, a, I'm pretty much of a statist. I, I, I'm okay with certain regs, but only if the state provides for it. Environmental advocates, so it talks about them, uh, were at the state capitol the same day to urge state lawmakers to pass a package of bills aimed at com combating climate change because our state is actually doing pretty horrible. According to the EPA, research shows that warmer springs, longer summer dry seasons, and drier soils and veg lead to an increase in wildfire season length and frequency. A lot of other problems. Some of the bills they support would create a super fund to address climate change paid for by oil companies, reduce single plastic waste, cap energy bills, um, and allow, by energy bill meaning like cap the amount that national grid can charge you. These are not just, you know, job, economy, worker-hating environmentalists who do not, uh, that work at odds with um, a worker struggle. No, they are very much intersectional about it. Uh, and allow the State Public Service Commission authority, the authority, to align gas utility regulations with the state's climate laws, which currently they're just completely out of sync. Judith Edwick, uh, president of Beyond Plastics and served as an EPA general administrator during the Obama administration, Quotes, the air pollution risk that every single New Yorker is facing today is incredibly real. What doctors are most concerned about is particulate matter from wildfires, specifically the very fine particles that get lodged in our lungs. Uh, this is a risk for people with rep respiratory disease, heart disease, pregnant women. This is the first time I remember a governor of the state of New York telling children and residents to actually stay indoors. COVID didn't do that during COVID. Blair Horner, executive director of the New York Public Interest Research Group, NYPERG, said the bills are in various stages of pending in the state legislature. The legislative session, scheduled to end Friday, none were brought forward or voted on. Often what happens in Albany is the last few days are bad. This week should be something that's good. There are huge fires and firefighters from coast to coast in Canada. We saw what happened in Australia, where people had to have be evacuated by boat because of the dangers of fires. This is just the beginning, Horner said. Enough platitudes about the concern about climate change or how aware we are. Let's have some real action involving your lawmakers with some actual 
corporate economic costs. Hochul also explained she does not plan to issue a state of emergency order, since those orders are designed to make available funding and resources to combat a crisis. Oh no, we can't do that. We're not in a crisis, because we're not on fire. But if every state around us is on fire, no, no, it's not our problem. We just have to inhale the smoke from it. It's like we haven't learned any lessons from acid rain or what have you. It's the same principles. A state of emergency, quoting her, is used as a mechanism where there's something you can do about it. There's nothing we can do about climate change. This is what it implies. Uh, we don't have a lot we can do about the circumstances of contaminated toxic air coming into our airspace. So, yeah, you just treat the crisis as kind of one-off temporary disasters like the hurricane. Not something that we can tackle long-term, of course. Um, that, would, that would require harming profits. Anyway, even if you're just feeling a little scratch in your throat, being exposed that consistently is dangerous for your health. With all these people with asthma and compromised immune systems and respiratory illnesses and having come off of COVID, this is a dangerous time for New Yorkers. I want everyone to take this very seriously. I don't think they're taking climate change very seriously considering the complete lack of action on any climate change lawmaking. Seems like we don't have a lot of good leaders on climate change in, in our in our liberal democratic government, uh, or Republican government. And on that note, a little thing about leadership. Just a little pop psychology for you. A Babel hypothesis shows key factor to becoming a leader. This is published by Big Think, which I guess I have mixed feelings about, but regardless, it is uh, uh, Paul Ratter wrote this. Research shows that those who spend more time speaking tend to emerge as the leaders of groups regardless of their intelligence. Now, I'm going to put a big asterisk with this after I, or as I read this, that this is in a very defined, limited setting, and that many thought experiments and abstract concepts are used and varnished about all the time to discuss how you know, change and social change is hopeless and what have you, but it's, it's only within defined context uh, that, say, the prisoner's dilemma is only an economic problem when we're talking about prisoners or a criminal justice system that punishes people with jail time or the the uh, the concept of the tragedy of the commons is only if there is some outside pressure to maximize one's individual profit making if that is not the case then there is no tragedy of the commons people can manage the commons but if it's well i could make more money than others or it's I'm incentivized to make as much as possible. There's, a, there's a, making enough, but then if I can make, you know, generate more by exploiting more environment or more people on the marketplace, well, that's a problem with the market, not the commons or human nature. So, too, the discussion of leadership. A new study proposes the Babel hypothesis of becoming a group leader. Researchers show that intelligence is not the most important factor in leadership. You could say extroversion is. Those who talk the most tend to emerge as group leaders. Now, when I was a teen or a college student, if I had decided to become edgy and emo, I would say, well, I'm an introvert and the world's against me because it's run by extroverts. Um, but then I got woke and realized it was capitalists and not all capitalists are extroverts. Just look at Elon Musk. You can own a lot of capital and still be pretty bad with people. 
or you can be really good with people and, or good at lying to people like Trump. But Trump isn't really good at making money on his own. It's more like he's the uh, actual resource that's being exploited by others. That's kind of interesting. So if you want to become a leader, start yammering. It doesn't even necessarily matter what you say. New research shows that groups without a leader can find one if someone starts talking a lot. Now, in my um, lingo, I call this the tyranny of the active. This phenomenon described by the Babel hypothesis of leadership depends neither on group member intelligence nor personality. Leaders emerge based on the quantity of speaking, not quality. Researcher Neil McLaren, lead author of the study, he published it in the Leadership Quarterly. Amazingly, there's a um, journal that's just about leadership. So is it like, is it a corporate brand project? I may maybe have to click through this. I did not do the, the research. Sorry, folks. Believes his team's work may improve how groups are organized and how individuals within them are trained and evaluated. So maybe it's a, this is a corporate study for corporate people. And because that, that, this is all maybe in a corporate context is what I'm saying. It turns out that early attempts to assess leadership quality were found to be highly confounded with a simple quantity, the amount of time that group members spoke during a discussion. This is uh, Sherrod McLaren. He is a research fellow at Binghamton U. So New York, New York research grant dollars at work. While we tend to think of leaders as people who share important ideas, leadership may boil down to whoever babbles the most. Understanding the connection between how, many, how much people speak and how they become perceived as leaders is key to growing our knowledge of group dynamics. After all, aren't I a leader? Look at how much I'm talking. The power of babel. The research involved 256 college students. Not a huge sample, but at least, you know, at Binghamton U, I guess that's what they're working with. So it's college study, college students. They were divided into 33 groups of 4 to 10 people. That's quite a large, not a lot of consistency there. Because um, a 10-person group will make decisions differently than a 4-person group. I can tell you that from all the meetings I've been part of. They were asked to collaborate on either a military computer simulation game, which is just called BCT Commander, or a business-oriented game, which they called Clean Start. The players had 10 minutes to plan how they would carry out the task, which isn't that much time, but that's barely enough time for one go-around, depending on how many people are there, and 60 minutes to accomplish it as a group. One person in the group, now, of course, they're not saying, were these random people, were they friends? One person in the group was randomly designated as the operator, whose group was to control the user interface of the game. So they had sort of the means of production in this area. To determine who became the, or access to the means. To determine who became the leader of each group, the researchers asked the participants, or actually maybe the operator is like the worker in this scenario and the rest of the group are the uh, managers. <laughs> to determine who became the leader of each group, the researchers asked the participants both before and after the game to nominate one to five people for this distinction. The scientists found that those who talked more were also more likely to be nominated. This remained true after controlling for a number of variables, such as previous knowledge of the game, various personality traits, or intelligence. So they were stacking these up. They have a video. Well, if you'd like to watch it, links are posted in the show notes. In an interview with SciPost, McLaurin shared that, quote, the evidence does seem consistent that people who speak more 
are more likely to be viewed as leaders. Another find was that gender bias seemed to have a strong effect on who was considered a leader. So when conservatives say, oh, there's, there's no more obstacles, uh, another find, uh, in our data, men receive an, on average at least one extra vote for being a man. The effect is more extreme for the individual with the most votes. So obviously it's like the more votes you get, the more popular you are, the more others will go along. And that's kind of how the tyranny of the active works. But I've, been, I've taken an interest listener in uh, political poll surveying, uh, determining like what people, there's a question of what you believe and why, but more to the point, like uh, in surveying that, determining where people are in political categories if you are to form those categories. I liked um, what Pew does where they, they interview like 10,000 people, a very large sample, and uh, by through interviews they get to or they change their polling questions in the categories they make, the nine categories, political groupings in America, which I has some explanatory value since it is based on the lived experiences of the interview subjects, not just the abstract ideas of freedom, equality, liberty, or authority. Uh, these things sound really good, but they are not actually based on the conditions or how things work. Good political science is you start with how things are, and then you build up your ideas and conception from there. So I'd like to do that in the polling sense, where one critic, an article I read, maybe I could bring it up, but that's not the purpose of the show, this episode. Um, but I'm just summarizing it all. Is He pointed out, like, you know, a lot of these political compass tests and stuff, like, they're not really measuring something that's actually quantifiable. And even if you were... The problem is that many of these values are exclusionary. For example, there is the abstract idea that you can be a libertarian and a capitalist. But capitalism requires a state to enforce property rights. So if you believe in the liberty of property rights, private property rights in particular, you need to enforce them somehow. And even if it's private, with your private police force, your private army, your private court, and your private security system, you have all of this, how can you not call that person a state or the king of his little fiefdom and say, oh, yes, that guy is a libertarian. He just happens to have all of the qualities of a state in, in our town. So if you, if you kind of treat those, at least the abstract values, this is just one way of looking at it, as exclusionary values that like, okay, you can have like a 50% equality score but then there will be, like a, if it's split equally, a 25% autonomy score and a 25%, uh, he called it nobility, which is just the what you think determines rank in society, that you believe in rank. If you don't believe in any ranks, there shouldn't be any ranks. You're a zero, pure anarchy. And 100 is birthright. And then the spectrum would be merit-based rank, wealth-based rank, and so on. An equality spectrum, which I, I pretty useful, is that low equality is equality under the law, which is where most liberals and conservatives are. Then there's equality of opportunity, which is where most liberals and lib-lefts are. And then there's equality of outcome or economic floor. And then on the autonomy side, you kind of put the, the distinction between privately being able to do what you want, but publicly being regulated, and then... 100% of you can do whatever you want regardless. 
and there's no state regulating it. So that's where I get into survey questions where I'm asking people, well, what would you want to happen or what would you do in these situations or what you think should be done given that in a private context, a semi-private context, then a semi-public context, and then a public context. Because this is a, a, a fellow of mine mentioned, well, people will say they're for one thing in private or they're like they're for free speech or whatever if it's between friends, but if it's in the public, it's a public interest. And their positions will change, whether it's gun control, abortion, or, well, you can do whatever you want as long as it's in your own bedroom. But you better not see kink at pride, you know, or I better not see that in front of me. Or I don't want in advertising. There needs to be limits there. I think that should, there should be scales like that of um, the, the private being like what you think is moral or what you think is politically, like how, how should power work when it's your family, how it should work when it's your workplace, and then your community, which would be like your neighborhood, and then your city or the country or the world. And then it can go public, which is just usually that's more what you think of the country, you think of the world. Maybe. I don't know. Again, that's something to poll about. But this is also something I'm thinking about because my new job involves data collection and polling and surveys. So that's the end of that article. So I'm just going to wrap up by repeating the asterisks that um, this was a college study or university study, limited um, kind of import, but like, because how long do they do these people know each other already? But again, it, it sort of does speak to a common sense that the person who speaks the most, oh, they must know what they're talking about, or they're confident, you know, and that is the person who takes the lead. And what kind of systems slash um, tools do we need to prevent this? And this is usually by having a structure. This is what I've learned. Um, you, can, you can have an anarchist meeting, but there needs to be a structure of uh, time limits, so that no one is, in fact, speaking longer than anyone else. So you have to enforce equality. Oh, no. It's like the, it's a, it's like the Vonnegut story where everyone's wearing weights, masks. Because <laughs> but what if someone's really good at talking? Shouldn't they be the leader then? Or you do go-arounds to ensure that everyone who wants to speak can speak. And thus, no one has the... Because you could get railroaded or gish galloped where someone just talks the most. And it, you could respond to one thing they said, but not the rest. So it all goes down the memory hole or the decision tube. So in the last bit of time, I'm going to cover two stories about malls. I'm not totally a fan of malls. I don't, I guess I, I don't say I loathe, loathe malls, but I pretty much hate malls as a suburban product and how they developed. Like even the original designer of the mall was like right away instant regret. He was like, this is not what I envisioned. Like he envisioned like a kind of town square and forgot that if it's being built by a private entity, it's not public space. It's a private space with their rules, corporate rules, bureaucracy, thus inhuman. <laughs> or a machine for, not a machine for living, like a modern architect like himself would think, but a machine for making money and generating profit. Because everything about a mall is, is designed to, have you, um, to entice you to spend money or influence you brainwashing okay so but malls are still uh, many malls have died in america but some uh still live 
And this is probably because they're sort of diversifying what they're doing as a real estate property, because that's usually who owns them. So here's two examples in the region. Paramount and Wilton Mall not ready to abandon plans for 382 apartments slash townhouses. So as shopping mall owner, March Jensen Paramount Development of Sarasota, Florida. Why is this in the Albany Business Review? I thought this I thought these were malls like, you know, in Saratoga or something. But it's, it's an example that, um, and actually it leads to the Crossgates um, article a little bit. That's kind of why I had them together. Is that, you know, you have these malls and they're going into building housing and other things. Oh, wait, no. That, you know what it is? I think the writer, Robin Cooper, messed up. He said Sarasota, Florida. I think he meant to type Saratoga. And the autocorrect made it Sarasota. And it added Florida automatically. What a cut and paster. The Wilton Town Board, who, because I know Wilton is a New York town, who questioned whether apartments will allow Marrakech to reverse a string of store closings. Since the start of the COVID pandemic, 18 national retailers have left the mall. So this is a dying mall off of the North Way. Yeah, so the Wilton Mall is near Exit 15, off of Interstate 87, the North Way. So, and they're dying because a bunch of retailers left. Their anchor tenant Sears and Bon Ton closed two years before that. Paramount currently is working on similar development projects on mall properties in Charlotte, North Carolina, Madison, and Wisconsin. Most areas recognize what's happening to malls and are eager to turn that ship around sooner rather than later, says Tom Settle, principal with Paramount, the developer capitalist. Paramount is under contract to purchase the 13-and-a-half-acre project site from Marish. The land sale would give Paramount enough space to construct about 300 apartments, 86 townhouse-style apartments, that's separate. Rents expected to start at two grand. To make the project happen, Marish and Paramount are asking the town board to amend the zoning and permit residential use at the Wilton Mall. So it's mixed use, which I'm actually generally in support of. But of course, like what I mentioned with the carrot and the stick, developers, capitalists, developers, they get carrots, they can change the rules. <laughs> Local homeowners, no way, Jose. Are 400 apartments really going to save that mall? I can't see it, says town supervisor John Lant. And I don't see how those apartments are going to do anything to impact the finances of the town. Why? They don't pay property taxes? Marish officials believe the project not only is the next step to position Wilton Mall for a rebound, they contend the town and school district will benefit on many levels. It's for the kids. That's why they do what they do. They pay school taxes, of course. That's why they always want them to be high. It's possible, right? The $130 million development is projected to increase county sales taxes revenue by $367,500. Not really a lot. An additional $3.5 million annually in property tax for the Saratoga Springs School District. First time Saratoga is mentioned, but I assume that's where it is. We see this as the next evolution of the mall. You're evolving. We see this residential project as another component to create a mixed-use environment that will be the catalyst for additional change in the future of the property. Skip to the end. Executives from Marish and Paramount plan to work with the town to see if they can find a resolution. Schaefer hopes to bring the project back to the board for another discussion in the spring. I save this in the winter time, I guess. March 6th. Yeah, I guess it's technically winter. So... I mentioned Crossgates. Let's talk Crossgates. 
also from February. I save these in roughly the same few weeks. But guess this. And I don't think the uh, situation there has changed too much. Pyramid is the company that owns Crossgates. Their mall loans... So Pyramid's Crossgates mall loans lurch towards default once again. Like most large malls across the U.S., the Crossgates business model has been crushed by the pandemic as well as changing shopping trends. Because most of the trends that COVID kind of exasperated were continuous since 2009. Two loans valued at $157 million taken out by the owners of Crossgates Mall appear to be headed once again to a potential default amid the widespread financial challenges facing large indoor shopping malls. Now, for other context here, an article I don't think I covered, or maybe I did um, in an early episode. I don't think so, but it was a fun one. It was basically about how like the Chinese restaurant places in the food court, which are constantly fighting with each other, they're in, it's it's hot. They are their rent's outrageous. It's like that's too, their rent is like two grand a month, and Crossgates Pyramid wanted them to pay all of it back throughout the pandemic. They wanted them to keep paying rent during the pandemic when no one was there, or they couldn't operate. They were trying to bleed rocks, and no wonder they get so aggressive with those free samples. Bloomberg reported Friday evening that two Crossgates loans were flagged due to fears that a default on the debt was imminent. The loans are due to be paid off in full in May after Crossgates was able to get a one-year extension last year on the debt. Where did they spend this $150 million, I wonder? And there are two of them. Now, of course, they have been building things around the perimeter of the mall, uh, or the ring road of it, actually, chomping up more of the pine bush uh, wildlife and um, environment. Bloomberg News reported that uh, Trimont Real Estate Advisors of Atlanta was hired earlier this month to try and salvage the loan and modify the terms if needed. A third loan that Bloomberg says is valued at $88 million was not been designated for special servicing. Pyramid Management of Syracuse, which owns Crossgates and other malls across upstate, did not respond to a request for comment. The mall has a in case you wanted to know, 107 million square feet of space. Issues with Pyramid's mortgages on malls it owns across upstate and elsewhere have been occurring for several years now after the pandemic forced many of its tenants into bankruptcy and forced the mall to renegotiate leases, usually at much lower rents, of virtually all of its tenants. Rating agencies have been downgrading the credit of debt securities backed by indoor shopping malls for years now that falling occupancy rates and rents. Crossgates and other large indoor malls across the country had already been dealing with a challenging retail environment when traditional anchor stores like Macy's fell out of favor of the public amid the rise of convenient online shopping offered by Amazon. It's disruption. It's destructive chaos. Uh, uh, it's creative destruction, people. As part of that shift, Crossgates and other malls have already invested heavily in attracting new tenants and entertainment, trying to be more of a lifestyle center, with a comedy club, Bowling, never gone to a bowl yet. Because, again, it's like you go to the mall to do activities, and they cost twice as much because if you went to a bowling alley, it's the bowling alley's business. When you go to the bowling alley in the mall, it's that business and their tenant paying a landlord. So you basically have to pay double. However, Pyramid has successfully restructured many of the problem loans so far. So it's likely that the current issues with Crossgate's loans 
will be settled as well before the due date in May. Damn. <laughs> Last June, Pyramid Management CEO Stefan Kogel announced a deal to refinance debt from Crossgates Commons, Pyramid's big box retail property uh, on Washington Ave Extension. Getting a deal done certainly speaks volumes to Pyramid's pers persistence, determination, and resilience as a developer and our commitment to reinvesting in our centers to ensure their long-term growth and continued success. Evidence submitted in the cases shows that Crossgates has been bleeding money as it has been forced to dramatically reduce rent for key tenants and offer other retailers dramatically reduced rents just to fill vacant storefronts. For instance, which may have may speak to the fact that they were overcharging or their rents are too high. Which is interesting how, like, you know, following market liberal economics jargon, you know, supply and demand. Well, if demand is low, then prices should adjust, shouldn't it? But, oh, this is terrible. It's a disaster. Can't do that. Prices can never go down based on demand. For instance, the rent of fast fashion retailer Forever 21 was reduced from $106 million a year to... 388000 when the lease was renewed. So something I would actually consider reasonable. A million and a half dollars to rent that, that retail space. So there are many hidden costs that Crossgates has had to carry that may never be recovered. Crossgates spent nearly $900,000 on upgrades and incentives to attract the Amazon four-star store that opened in 2021 but was closed by the Ontario online retail giant the following year. So they spent basically a million dollars so that Amazon would open a store. I didn't even notice this happened, but I guess that just shows how much I go at Crossgates now. If I do, it's to a specific box store and really nothing else. And this was written by a Larry Rulson, reporter for the Times Union, which is where I'm reading this from. So, Parting words, malls should be converted into things like housing and, uh, and well, basically, I mean, in general, as a leftist, community, property, you know, big, big projects and property like this needs to be, you know, public land. And public can mean state or city. It can also mean community, nonprofit, churches, whatever. Don't care. Um, I mean, it matters, but it's not, like, it's it's down the, down the priority list of it shouldn't be a landlord. It shouldn't be profiteering you know it doesn't have to be for profit profit is good for getting all the surplus resources to industrialize and all that but now that we've done that i think we should we can level out we can level up it maybe even degrow and we can start with advertising just the advertising space so let's head out now with the outro so that's this week's show please contact me to leave feedback suggest topics or join me on the program Use my socials on Facebook and Twitter and Macedon at What's Left in Albany, or W-A-L-I-A, slash, Three Left Show. I'm on Instagram at Dan J. Platt, P-L-A-A-T. As well, my main website for the show is www.3lefts.news, which contains show notes and the archive of all episodes for both programs. What's the Three Left Show? It's my leftist theory show where I discuss strategies, practice, and a look for a left for itself. Now, I want to wish all well and encourage all listening to devote some time every week to a collective or community project as we all discover what is actually left in all.
Let's have our party Albany. Let's have a big dash Albany. Let's celebrate now Albany. Another scandal Albany. That's what your vote is gonna get. Hey town, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going all the way in the That's what